they have they have some really amazing examples of uh, the control of aging in their various um, mammalian systems and mice and human cells and so on. Uh, we are going to uh, look to see what the bioelectric component of that is. How much of how much of that control? How what happens to the bioelectrics during aging? Can you use the bioelectrics to try to reverse aging? Uh Hi everyone, welcome to Live Longer World, a podcast where we unite to fight aging and boost longevity. All resources and premium member benefits can be found at LiveLongerWorld.com. Now. On to today's episode. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Live Longer World podcast. Such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. Really pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, very excited uh, to talk to you about your research today. Huge fan of it. And I want to start by reading out a sentence from your website where you say that most of the interesting questions in biology boil down to the control of shape. We all start life as a single cell, the egg, which somehow self-assembles into an incredibly complex organism. And the question of how it's able to achieve its intended pattern or morphology, as you call it, is the main issue of developmental biology. And I think this is fascinating because what you're saying is that cells come together to form these tissues and organs and entire complex organisms. And a lot of your research focuses on the fact that cells have this collective intelligence that they use to form entire organisms or bioelectrical signals. So I'll let you explain what you mean by collective intelligence or bioelectrical signals. Sure. Well, there's a couple of things going on here with, with the focus on embryonic development. One is if we just sort of really practically think about biomedicine, you can notice that uh, with the exception of infectious disease, almost all of the problems of medicine would be solved if we could tell cells what to do. So if we if we had the ability to determine what it is that cells build together, then, mm. you know, uh, uh, birth defects, uh, traumatic injury, cancer, aging, degenerative disease, all of this, all of this could be could be resolved, because you could simply tell the cells to build healthy new organs, right? So it's so 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 morphogenesis is a really fundamental problem in biology and, and medicine in particular, in terms of this question of how do collectives of cells decide what they're going to be what they're going to build because it's clear that they can build multiple things they normally build the same you know default kinds of patterns but but how do we understand that how do we control that that's the first thing the other sort of more more uh, kind of deeper more philosophical way to think about it is that a lot of times people will uh, look at themselves or other you know other humans or even other um, uh, what so-called advanced animals and they will say this, you know, I, I am a cognitive system. I have true uh, beliefs, uh, memories, cognition, right, preferences. That there is just physics. You know, this other thing, whether it be some sort of, um, you know, AI that somebody built or a synthetic, uh, you know, construct or whatever, they'll say, that, that's just physics. That's just mechanism. But we all in our life made that journey from just physics, which was a single cell with all the chemistry that goes on there. But very slowly, step by step, with no magical, you know, light flash of any kind, when when cognition, you know, sort of shows up, we become this this uh, this this highly um, uh, uh, sentient uh, being with a first person perspective and so on. So that process is very slow and smooth, and and we all journey through that, and so that that helps us really uh, think in an important way about where things come from, such as cognition, such as memory preferences, you know, all these all these issues. So I think it's very important to keep in mind where we come from, both, both evolutionarily and, and developmentally. I see. So there are two points you mentioned that one, of course, once we understand how cells process this information, it can have important implications for regeneration, aging cancer, as you mentioned, and we'll talk about some of that. And then the second one, super interesting from a philosophical standpoint then. So is that, I mean, I guess, is that a way of saying we're maybe programmed and once you figure out these electrical signals, um, you can essentially create these organisms with, you know, memory and cognition or free will or consciousness or what, what have you. And I think you've probably shown that maybe initially with some of your experiments around xenobots as well. Yeah, I think I think that's unavoidable. If in in a in a in a modern scientific worldview, uh, I think it is unavoidable. And that taking evolution seriously, taking developmental biology seriously, realizing that um, all of these changes are very slow and gradual. I think uh, it is it is unavoidable to think that 
the kinds of processes that give rise to cognition, memory, and, and so on in us and in, uh, you know, in other animals are something that not only can arise through the processes of evolution, but of course can be engineered as well. There's nothing really magical about evolution. It's a, you know, it's this kind of um, large scale hill climbing search through the space of possible bodies, which give rise to possible minds. And there's zero uh, reason why engineers couldn't do better than a more or less randomly guided, uh, you know, process that, that basically just optimizes for biomass. You know, it's not really optimizing for intelligence or anything like that. So, yeah, I think I think it's absolutely likely that we will be able to engineer those things. So that that raises many uh, important um, responsibilities for us, and both both ethically and scientifically, to understand really what we're doing. Uh, yeah, and I think. Uh, it's 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 you know programming we, we can talk separately about the, the issue of programming but just in general uh this this idea that there's a deep continuity between things that we consider to be just chemistry and physics and things mm -hmm. that we consider to be cognitive systems there is no you know sharp dividing line there it's it's a very smooth continuum fascinating so what you're saying is that if i understand say your bioelectrical signals mm -hmm. i can create another michael levin just just like you maybe things like you has similar intelligence, but I guess over with your experiences that would evolve as well. Yeah, I mean, well, so let's go back to the way where the bioelectrics comes into all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, we are all collective intelligences, you know, people, people often think of, well, there's collective intelligence like ants and, and you know, ants and, and, and termites and bees and things like that. And then there is real intelligence like you know me I'm, I'm a real intelligence in the sense that i have a centralized i don't i don't feel like a collection of things i feel like a single unified and, and obviously um there's all kinds of uh, data in, in cognitive science and psychology that says that's you know mistaken in many ways but 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 the reality though is that we are all collective intelligences in the sense that we're all made of parts so you and i are bags of neurons basically and some other things um and the mystery here of course is how is it that the, the scaling, right? How, how is it that a collection of individual cells, which themselves are cognitive agents, they're very competent in their local areas, they know how to solve problems that are metabolic problems, physiological, and so on. How do they uh, join together to form this new emergent entity that knows things that none of the individual pieces know, they have goals and preferences that the individual parts are unable to, to comprehend, and so on. So that means that there has to be some kind of mechanism that acts as a it's a sort of uh, cognitive glue. It's a it's something that will take individual uh, subunits and bind them together in a way that they're not just a pile of stuff. That that in some way a new capability of of following much larger goals, of storing larger memories, of thinking about bigger things. So, somehow that has to happen. Now in the brain, of course, we know how that happens. At least uh, at least we know the pieces involved. We we don't know most of the important stuff, but we know the pieces. The pieces. It's a, it's an electrical network. So basically what evolution has discovered, which is that um, electrical networks among cells are an excellent uh, mechanism for coordinating information across distance, for binding subunits into decision-making circuits, for representing information as memory, all these kinds of things. You know, bioelectricity is great for that. And so then it's very simple. You just ask yourself, well, where did neurons come from? Right, neurons didn't just appear. This this magical trick that the brain does doesn't you know didn't just appear out of nowhere. It basically just speed optimized things that cells were doing long before neurons and brains appeared. So bioelectrics was evolution discovered bioelectricity around the time of bacterial biofilms already. You know that far back already it was it was it was selectively advantageous to, uh, to to exploit that type of physics to coordinate information across space in a multicellular kind of structure so so this was uh now, now one can ask some other interesting questions there too okay before neurons and muscles appeared where you could you know at that point you would be thinking about behaviors you're going to do in three-dimensional space what did tissues think about before there were brains so, mm -hmm. so right in, in, in the early evolutionary lineages when uh, the bodies were using, which they still are, using um, electrical circuits to control anatomy, what information were they processing? And I think the answer is they were navigating morphospace. Morphospace is simply the, uh, the space of all possible anatomical configurations. 
right? So, so, so there are areas of that morphous space um, belonging to a, a particular shape of the face of a frog and the foot of a, you know, of a, of a chicken and all these things. These all, all these things are, are regions of morphous space, and bodies navigate morphous space the way that uh, modern animals navigate three-dimensional space. And you need a, an information processing tool for that. That's what bioelectricity does. I see. So it's typically assumed, though, that, you know, DNA is this information processing tool. And you say that, no, DNA is just this hardware and there's bioelectricity, which is actually the cellular collective intelligence or information processing. Can you talk a bit about that? Like, how do we know that this information does not come from the DNA? Sure. Um, well, I'd like to take a step back and uh, just, again, make a kind of a more or less of a philosophical point, which is that... Mm, what I'm not arguing is that there is one correct way to look at this and that mm -hmm. mine is the correct way and that everybody else is wrong. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there are multiple, basically every, any kind of a model, you know, there's a famous saying, I forget who said it, but there's a famous saying that says all models are wrong, but some are useful, right? And I think that's very true. Uh, this question of when we, when we look at, when we look for a controller, when we look for information, when we look for uh, hardware, software, all of these things are formal models that we come up with that we try to impose on the world. And, you know, my point is uh, you impose them, you see how well that does for you, and then you you just decide, okay, that model is good for these set of scenarios. It's maybe not so great for this other set of scenarios. Okay. Hmm. So, so what I'm going to propose is that uh, there are biological questions in which it makes perfect sense to look at the DNA as the source of your information. So if you want to know where uh, the proteins in your cell come from and what determines the various uh, hardware components that the cell has, mm -hmm. for sure the genome is your source of information. That, that's a very, good, um, it's a very good metaphor that served us very well for many decades. That's great. If you want to know uh, where large-scale pattern comes from, and how, how collections of cells make decisions about uh, uh, various uh, anatomical outcomes, I'm going to argue that uh, the genome is insufficient. And the reason it's insufficient is for the same reason that um, if, I, if I gave you a, uh, a device, a computer that played chess, you know, it's one of those chess playing um, games. I gave you a device that plays chess, and you said to me, you know, this thing is really just a collection of silicon and copper and things like that. I'm going to study those. And in the end, I'm going to know everything there is to know about this. And I would say, in a certain sense, that might be true. And if you had the age of the universe to sort of manipulate every atom and, and whatever, you, you might have some insight into what's going on. Uh, maybe you could even make some predictions about what it's going to do, but none of that is practical in our lifetime. Also, you would be completely missing the most important thing, which is you would never recover the, the rules of the game of chess from this. You would have no right. idea. You might, you might be able to predict it, you know, Laplace's demon kind of thing. You might be able to predict what it's going to do just by tracking the electrical fields and magnetic fields, but you would miss the most exciting thing about this, which is that it's a, it's a device with goals. It has goals in a really weird and interesting space. It has goals like protect the king, dominate the center of the board, you know, get whatever, whatever it is that, that you know, chess players do. You would be missing out on all of that. So, so what the DNA, now, now the thing with DNA is we, we can read genomes now. We know that, the, that there is no direct encoding for size, shape. None of that is in there. The only thing that's in the genomes are protein sequences. Right now, now we, at, at one point we didn't know that. Now, now of course we know that, um, and it's very easy to to uh, come up with examples. Here, here's here's an example. Um, in my lab, we are making something we call a frogolotl. So, frogolotl is uh, a, uh, an embryo that's uh, some percentage frog cell, some percentage embryo um, um, axolotl cells. Okay. Mm. Now, now, uh, now, now, here's the thing. Um, baby uh, axolotls have legs. Frog tadpoles don't have legs. So you have the genome of the frog, you have the genome of the axolotl. Can you tell me if frogolotls are going to have legs or not? Uh, there's no model that would let you answer that question. Uh, right. right. If I have a planarian flatworm with a flat head and one with a round head, and I mix the stem cells from one and the other in a single animal and I cut the head off, what shape are we going to get? We, we have all these great papers in, in science and nature about the molecular, the, the genetic components that uh, control stem cell differentiation. That, that's mm -hmm. great, but there's not a single model based on any of that stuff that will tell you what head shape they're going to make, because because that is a different level of question, and it's 
it's it's like trying to in, in neuroscience it's the equivalent of trying to resolve um, psychological issues uh, at the level of uh, synaptic proteins uh, you know mm -hmm. occasionally that might work but generally speaking that doesn't work and so uh, so so we have many examples where the most efficient representation of what the system is going to do in terms of what shape it's going to regenerate whatever is is very well controlled and read from the electrical information but it's very poorly controlled and read from genetic information and that's to me the only um marker or definition of what it means to have to have an answer to that question of where does information come from but you know f f f philosophical answers uh you know things like well i always like everything all, i like all my explanations at the level of biochemistry you know i want to be a reductionist that that you know those philosophical kinds of pronouncements are um, to me a very limited value what you really want is here's here's my metaphor here's what it enables me to do here are the experiments the biomedical applications here's what it enables me to do Let's see yours. Let's see what yours allows us to do. And then we will know which one is more or less useful in different circumstances. That's a great point. Just working with different models and see which one's useful. So on the point of, um, you know, if you combine two different heads or uh, have you done any of those experiments and have you shown what ends up happening? We're, we're, in, the pro <coughs> Excuse me. we're in the process of doing those experiments. But I, I, I don't want to focus on the answer because the answer isn't the point right it's not it, it's not a, it's not the point whether frog models have legs there's an infinite number of combinations that you can make in fact there's an mm -hmm. even bigger point which is never mind the combinations if i just mm -hmm. give you a genome can you tell what the shape is going to be now you can cheat and compare that to a different genome where you already know what the shape is okay that's fine comparative genomics you can do that but that's cheating the what you really want to do is be able to look at the genome and say can I can I tell you what the what the symmetry type, the size, the shape, regenerative capacity? What is this thing going to be? We have almost zero ability to do that, and and it's not about the outcome of specific experiments. It's really the question of what is it? What is it really that that, that you're asking? And what we're asking is uh, not questions about uh, specifically the hardware, like which proteins do you have? DNA is great for that. It's how do you make decisions in novel circumstances? We have lots of situations, and I can I can tell you about some, where mm -hmm. cells and tissues are confronted with uh, novel situations that they've never seen before, either during their own lifetime or during evolution. In fact, evolution never prepared them for that specific circumstance. They're able to do problem solving. And what we see is that evolution doesn't, in fact, provide solutions for specific environments. What it provides are machines that are able to solve problems. In, in a range of environments. Very interesting. That plasticity and that generalization is super, super interesting. And uh, those are the kinds of questions that we really want to understand, which is how do they make decisions? How do they generalize? How do they learn? How do they solve problems? N none of that is uh, usefully addressed at the level of the, the DNA uh, or, or the proteins for that matter. Right. It, it almost sounds like it's um, it's related to, say, the theory of knowledge or epistemology, but from more of a biochemistry or biophysical perspective. It, it is. It is. It's uh, it's it's I think that um, a lot of work gets done in this area where people think that they're avoiding philosophy. And, and I, I think the intended said this, that, you know, when you think you're avoiding philosophy, that just means you're doing very bad philosophy, meaning that you're, <laughs> you're, you're neglecting, you know, some really important uh, questions that you should be, you should be keeping track of. And um, yeah, I think epistemology uh, goes into it. I think uh, ontology goes into it when we ask, you know, do we really believe in the existence of, you know, some people will say, I only believe in chemistry. I'm a reductionist. I don't believe in, in goals, I don't believe in purpose, I don't believe in, uh, you know, any of these large scale things that we think about. Of course, you know, if somebody is a real reductionist, then they would really like to be talking about quantum foam, not, not you know, not chemical gradients and so on. But, um, but, but it gets to that question, what, what does it mean to believe in the existence of, of something like that, right? Um, yeah. Amazing. Okay, so before we go into maybe some of the applications of your research, I guess one last point is that you mentioned that, you know, the goal ultimately should that should be that we can create this anatomical compiler, any sort of electrical signal you give it, it should be able to create whatever shape you want. Well, to be clear, the, the anatomical compiler is not just about bioelectricity. It's, it's a bit of a different claim, right? I mean, I happen to, to think that bioelectricity is very important, but the anatomical compiler is a much more general type of concept. 
Okay. Maybe you can talk a bit about it. What, what is it then? The idea is that uh, if, if you sort of ask, I, I sometimes ask the people in my lab this when they join, I say, what, what, is the, what is the end game here? Like, when can we all go home and give up, you know, and, be, and consider that we're done, right? So, so because you have to, I think, I think it's important to look forward and to try to identify what is your actual goal for these things. Mm -hmm. I, I think the actual goal is the complete control of structure in, and, and function and thus function. So basically, any shape that you want to make, and it, you should you should be able to make and so and so what does that look like in practical terms well you should be able to sit down in front of a computer and you should be able to draw the way we draw car parts and various other things in cad you know computer aided design you should be able to draw what you want but you're drawing anatomy you're not drawing molecular biology you don't know anything about pathways you don't need to you when this field is mature somebody should be able to sit down and say i want uh, an organ, I, I want a heart, but one that looks like this, or I want, or I want a perfectly normal human eye, or I want, you know, I want a frog and I'd like it to have six legs and I, you know, and, and tentacles or whatever, I'm making that up, but do you understand? You should be able to draw absolutely anything. And then if we knew what we were doing, the system would compile that description into a set of stimuli that would have to be given to cells to make them build it whatever you drew. Mm -hmm. Now, partly, I'm, I'm sure, partly will be bioelectrical, but partly it won't. There will be chemical cues. There will be um, biophysical cues. I mean, there's evidence for ultra-weak pho ultra photon uh, communication in the body. There's all kinds of other modalities. But the point is, that's what it should look like. If, if, if this field were solved, that's what the solution would look like. You should be able to draw anything you want, and, and out would come a set of instructions uh, for stimuli that to, to here's what you do to the cells to get them to to do this fascinating almost sounds like science fiction to me <laughs> yeah well it's science fiction i mean the job of science fiction is to uh imagine what the science should look like right. going forward right from that perspective sure it's science fiction i think yeah you know there's a difference between i i, I love science fiction i've read a lot of science fiction there's a difference between things that are actually impossible Mm -hmm. And then, right, and then, and there are many reasons why things might be impossible. And then there are things that are purely uh, limited by existing resources, existing uh, kind of concepts, imagination. This is squarely in that camp. There is nothing impossible about this. We, we, we know that, uh, you know, something, something as with, with the limited foresight of, of natural evolution is able to produce these amazing bodies can you imagine what we could do rationally if we knew what we were doing i mean that's you know totally so I, i'm curious then is this um is this relatively new then have people been working on it maybe for a long time and they just didn't have breakthroughs or was there a limit to imagination specifically the the um the uh the compiler you're talking about the compiler or just uh talking about you know collective intelligence of cells oh, and how they process information yeah hmm. Well, um, okay, uh, let's look at it this way. The question of how single cells become adult has been around since the time of Aristotle and probably before that. So, so the interest in that question is very, very old. Mm -hmm. uh, developmental biology is probably, can probably be traced back to the 1700s, something like that. Um, and scientists have been trying to study this process ever since. So for, for sure, this is a very old question. Now, what's, what's new here is this idea that uh, the, the, using, using an interdisciplinary approach where you take things from physics, from computer science, from cognitive science, and you use them to apply to developmental biology, it's it's new and it's not new. It's it's new because because the trend over the last sixty to eighty years has been avoiding all of that stuff and really developing something very focused on molecular genetics, biochemistry. Right, that's been mm -hmm. the approach. It's been considered inappropriate to use tools from other fields like cognitive science. You know, you know, you're not supposed to be thinking about software because because or or, or um, things like goal directedness or learning in these systems because people, you know, so, but, but biologists are really kind of terrified about this. There's a kind of teleophobia that operates here where as soon as you start thinking about goals and software and things like that, the danger is that somebody's going to slip into, well, if there's an algorithm, somebody must have written it. 
And then, right. and then, you know, and then there's some sort of, you know, semi-religious, you know, thing and, and biologists really hate that. And so, and so, you, you know, they try to be uh, intentionally mind blind, you know, there's this, there's this uh, mind blindness that exists where people can't, can't have a theory of mind about others. And they, you know, they see everything as a mechanism. So scientists are intentionally kind of mind blind in that way. It's mm -hmm. new-ish because it's been that way. It's just starting to crack that, that paradigm is just starting to crack now. On the other hand, if you look back to the classical workers in this field, all of this has been said before. So, uh, what, you know, the forefathers of developmental biology. Uh, I think it was. I think it was. Um, it was. It was Driesch probably who said that. Uh, you know, the question of the question of cognition and the question of development are the same question. And I think that is profoundly important and interesting and true. And it's been ignored for for many many decades. So so it's new and it's not new. And uh, conceptually, I think people have seen this a long time ago. Though you know, really brilliant minds have seen this a long time ago. Uh, however, what's what's also really new here is that now we know a lot more about. Now there is a science of collective behavior. There is a science of complexity. There is, uh, you know, there is a computer science which didn't exist before. Isn't it amazing that um, you know, Alan Turing, right, who who many people mm -hmm. consider the forefather of, of computer science. He was interested in, t in intelligence, and he also wrote some of the first papers on mathematical modeling of morphogenesis. You know, he was interested wow. in uh, Turing patterns, right? He had this, he had this incredible uh, paper about um, how, how order arises in biology and Turing patterns. You ask yourself, hmm. why, would some, why, why would he be interested in this? Why, if you're into AI and computers, especially, you know, in the 30s and 40s where uh, there was no, you know, there wasn't really any computational biology or synthetic biology or anything like that, why would you be interested in both of those things? Because there is a profound symmetry here, and and I think uh, I think if he had lived, we would have seen way, this field would be f way further along. Well, I'm very glad you're working on it. Very interesting work. So I want to talk about some of the applications. So it's more concrete for people. Um, you talk about you know some of the applications being in regenerative medicine or mm -hmm. potentially seeing cancer as a morphogenetic code. Uh, maybe first the issue of regenerative medicine. Um, if you could. Perhaps, you know, explain using some of your experiments uh, with flat worms or tadpoles or whatever you think is easiest to explain it. Yeah, so, so there are three broad um, areas of application of our work uh, in, in medicine, uh, birth defects, regenerative repair, and, uh, and cancer. So let's, mm -hmm. okay, so let's, let's start with the regeneration. The basic, the basic issue is that uh, all of your body organs were created at one point, they were they were made by cells. That information is still there. So if somebody's injured and they lose an organ for whatever reason, presumably that the information on how to build it is still there. So the, the mm -hmm. trick is then to uh, convince the cells to do it again, to rebuild it. And so how would you convince them to rebuild it? Well, you might start thinking about, well, how did they know to build it in the first place? And if the answer to that is uh, there's a bioelectrical uh, kind of pattern memory that helps them understand what to build. Maybe you can reactivate that again. So we have a lot of work, for example, in in planaria. And what we've done is we've said, okay, uh, the amazing thing about planaria is that you can you can chop them into pieces, and every piece knows exactly what's missing and regrows exactly the right parts. Right. So if you chop a wow. planarian into thirds, that middle trunk fragment will grow a head at one end and a tail at the other end. So things like um, you know questions about um, how many heads are you supposed to have? Where does the head go? Where does the tail go? Uh, those those questions are easily um, easily resolved by by the pieces. In fact, in fact, the record is something like two hundred seventy five pieces. Right. So so it can be it can be actually very uh, very tiny pieces. So, uh, so what we did was we simply looked uh, at the at the bioelectric. We, we used a voltage reporting uh, fluorescent dye, and we simply looked at those pieces to ask what does the bioelectrics look like. And we saw an amazing thing that there's a pattern that you can literally read out that looks like uh, what a normal worm should look like. Now, the thing the thing with regeneration, animals that can regenerate, they they they. Uh, the, mo the most amazing thing about regeneration is, is not that they rebuild these organs. The most amazing thing is that they stop. That's really mm -hmm. the because once you injure them or you cut off, let's say you cut off the, the limb of a salamander or something like that, it will keep regenerating until a correct salamander limb or a correct planarian is formed, and then they stop. Well, how do they know when to stop? So if they know mm -hmm. when to stop, there has to be some sort of internal process that says, 
the error or to or the error isn't been reduced to the point where you are now correct and you can you correct enough and you can stop so there's basically this like homeostatic process and i call this anatomical homeostasis where much like your thermostat that basically will act to reduce the error from a certain set point the body will will act in terms of all kinds of cell behaviors to uh reduce the error of, of the anatomy now the thing about those kind of processes those homeostatic processes is that they have to store a set point somewhere you have to you have to record well what am i trying to reach right what's the information in the, in the thermostat it's very simple there are two numbers it's your it's your temperature range in in regeneration it has to be more complex you have to store some level of this of, of of like a coarse grain description of the anatomy that so that you know when it's right and when it's wrong so we have this idea that this is a hypothesis that 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 i made you know many years ago which is that and actually even that you know again it was considered very very um you know sort of uh, very new and very crazy when when we first started talking about it <laughs> originally it was originally uh said by uh, harold burr in 1936 who basically had nothing no no uh no technology to work with except a voltmeter right he made the first good voltmeter and he used to go around measuring all kinds of living things and on the basis of that he already pulled out this this theory that what if uh the tissue was storing a bioelectrical pattern that reminded it what the shape should be in case it gets injured okay hmm. and so and so in planaria we saw that we could actually see it it was, it was amazing. We could actually read the set point because wow. the, 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 the super important thing about all of this is that, you know, here's what's, here's what's cool about your thermostat. What's cool about your thermostat and all devices like it is that if you want to control the temperature of the room, you don't need to understand how your thermostat works. You don't need to rewire your thermostat. All you need to know is A, that it is a thermostat and B, that uh, how to read and write the set point. Once you understand that it will obey the set point and you know how to how to control the set point, the rest of it, you don't care about. It doesn't matter. You don't need to change the wiring. You don't need to do any of that, right? Because you because you because it's a good thermostat. This is this is an incredibly important path forward for regenerative medicine, because if it were true that there was an encoded set point, then you could manipulate the set point and you wouldn't have to rewire the genetics underneath. Why is that important? Because we don't have any clue. This is for the same reason I told you before that genetics was not a good uh, tool for understanding large scale um, uh, decision making in terms of patterning. Because other than single gene diseases, we don't have any idea how to solve this inverse problem of saying, well, I want this particular uh, finger to have this particular shape, or I want the, you know, the heel of the, of the foot to have a different shape, or what genes am I going to edit, right? CRISPR, mm -hmm. you have all the CRISPR technology you want, you don't know what genes to edit to make that happen. It's very difficult. So, so this, this means, if, the, if, if, if our hypothesis is true, it means that you could control the set point and let the cells do what they do best, which is build to the set point. And then you could go beyond the normal set points and 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 code some other stuff that uh, that that you know they weren't going to build, but that they will once you've encoded it, right? You can control it. So, as so in planaria, we found this we found this electrical uh, we found this electrical pre pattern, and then we figured out using ion channel drugs that open and close ion channels to manipulate uh, the voltages. We figured out how to reset that pattern. So what you can do is you can take a planaria, you can look at the pattern. The pattern says one head, one tail. You can reset it to be bipolar uh, symmetrical, meaning two heads. And, wow. then, and then guess what the cells do? They will build a planarian with two heads. Now, and you've shown this in labs. Oh, yeah. You've been able to build planarians. Yeah, sure, sure. We've published half a dozen papers on this. Uh, I could, yeah, there's videos of these two-headed uh, you know, planaria and everything. Yeah, because, because and this is very important, the question of how many heads should you have is not locked down by the DNA. What the DNA does lock down is mm -hmm. the hardware that by itself reliably produces a pattern that makes one heads. But that's not the only thing it can make. If you rewrite that pattern, the cells are just as happy to build other patterns. And um, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's where the analogy of hardware and software comes in. It's not about who wrote the algorithm. There's no, no human writing this algorithm. It's about a machine that separates the data from the execution component. The data is how many heads should we have? And it's separate, mm -hmm. independent of the cells 
which will consult that data and say it says two, eh, then we build two. And right, and so so that's the important piece here that it's not, and none of this would be reachable if you think about it from the perspective of DNA. Then you would do what all of molecular medicine does today, which is drill down on the hardware. It's you know rewiring genomic, um, you know rewiring circuits and um, transcriptional circuits, uh, genomic editing, protein structures. None of this is apparent at that level. In fact, if you were to sequence these two-headed worms. You could get you could get the genomics, you can get the proteomics, you could get anything you want. You would never know that they're two-headed because their genomes are wild type. We didn't edit the genome. There's nothing wrong with their genome. That's not where the information is, right? So, so, so we were able to. So, so we can make two-headed worms. We can make no-headed worms. Then we showed that actually in the anatomical uh, morphous space, well, guess what? There are other shapes belonging to other species of planaria, and we showed that you can take a, a genetically normal a piece of a worm and cause it to find a completely different, to basically to make a different head shape that belongs to a different species. The brain shape, the head shape, the distribution of stem cells becomes just like another species. There's nothing genetically wrong with them. It's the same genome. Again, if you were to sequence them, you would find, you would have zero uh, clue that, that that they have in fact had a completely different head that belonged to a different species. So that's the kind of stuff you can do, right? You can do in these systems. Um, that's in, in planaria. Uh, in frog, what we did was uh, to look at organ regeneration, and we said, okay, already we can control uh, whether you get a head or a tail without having to control directly the underneath molecular biology. We didn't, mm -hmm. the, the signal that we provide is very simple, so, so we don't need to um, micromanage the process by trying to guide all the thousands of t to, you know, hundreds of thousands of gene expression events that have to happen. We don't control any of that. We don't need to. The system already does that. We provide the upper level uh, decision making of how many heads should you have, right? Then, then the system takes care of the rest because it knows how to make heads. So we said, okay, could we go even upstream of that? What if, what if I don't even tell you what to build? I just activate a build whatever normally goes here signal. Just build whatever normally goes at this location. Presumably, you already know what goes. I just build that. And so, what we showed in in tad, we started with tadpole tails, and this is important because tails have spinal cord, and we were interested in getting muscle and spinal cord and that kind of thing. <clears throat> and then um, we did uh, le frog legs. So we did adult frogs, unlike salamanders, do not regenerate their legs. And what we showed is that after amputation, you mm -hmm. can provide a very short trigger that uh, would convince the cells to just start building whatever they normally build. They would build a leg or a tail. They would never build an eye or a tumor or anything else. They would build exactly what happens. So in the case of the, uh, of the tail, one hour exposure of the stump to the right bioelectric drugs kickstarts a set of events, including all the downstream molecular biology, everything else that you would otherwise have to micromanage, and mm -hmm. it gives you nine days of tail growth. Just wow. for one hour. In the, in the adult frog, one day, so 24-hour application of this cocktail gives you uh, a year and a half of leg growth, during which time we don't touch it at all. It's, it's all, everything we do is in the first few minutes. It's all about making the, making the decision, uh, you know, pushing those, those cells to a, to a decision point and then leaving it alone and letting the cells do what they need to do. So, um, yeah, so we now, and so, so this is probably a good time to do a disclaimer. There's a company called Morphoceuticals Inc., which David Kaplan and I um, co-founded. And uh, we are now uh, trying to push that into mice. So the idea is, can we push it to mammals? And hopefully, eventually, human human patients. So that's, wow. that's kind of the regeneration story. Yeah, I would love to would love to hear how the experiments go there. Um, I'm curious. So you said that you know, my, uh, like frogs, for example, the tadpoles will build what normally goes there or planaria already have the information to build ahead. But can you? build something which it doesn't already have the information to do? For example, can you build a tail in humans, even though humans don't have tails? Or can you yeah. build yeah. an extra limb in a flatworm, yeah. even though it doesn't have this information? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, we've made, we've made uh, planaria that have the wrong species heads. We've made tadpoles that have tails that belong to zebrafish or faces that belong to different kinds of frogs that are not to the frog we started with. You can do that. Um, but the question of information that it doesn't already have is a tricky, it's a, it's a tricky question. If you think from the point of view of the genetics, then mm -hmm. absolutely, because we can absolutely make 
a head shape of an animal, let's say a planarian, from a genome that you don't have that genome. You have a different genome. So from that perspective, mm -hmm. sure, sure we can. Mm -hmm. But I want to be careful about that because because uh, that's not the right perspective. The the better perspective is that of software and hardware. It's 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 of a collective intelligence navigating through this morphous space. And once you have that perspective, it's not so clear anymore because once you have the ability to navigate morphous space, there are many, many things in this morphous space that you might be able to find. In fact, we've made we've made planaria that look um, like like hedgehogs. They're spiky. They don't look like a flatworm at all. They're three dimensional, tall tubes. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's it's hard for me to say that they don't have that information. I think I, I think they don't have it in the sense that it's not internal. But I mm -hmm. think they can reach that information by exploring morphous space. It's a little bit like again, and it's again a computational analogy. Once you've made a circuit that can do computations, let's say it can do math, then you say, well, is the answer to five plus five in there? Well, it's not in there, but if you were to pose the question, if this thing knows the algorithm, it can certainly find it. And then and then you get to the interesting philosophical question of well, where do the truths of mathematics live? That's you know, that's it sounds very philosophical, but it's actually quite practical here because when when cells cooperate in novel ways to form new anatomies, like, for example, xenobots, right? There's never been xenobots um, ever. There's never been an evolutionary selection to make xenobots. How come they know how to make xenobots and, and with all kinds of new behaviors and everything else? Then, then the question is, well, where does that exist? And, and uh, it, it gets, I think, in the end, it's the same question to where, where do the truths of mathematics live? The fact that if you're, if you're evolution and you're building a triangle, and you nail down the first two angles of that triangle, you don't need to evolve the third. Mm -hmm. well, how come? Because you already know the third, right? If you know two angles, you know the third. But where, right. does, that, but where does that come from? There's no gene for, the, for, for that. It come, it's a free gift from mathematics, from geometry, from where? So that's where this comes in, right? You can make these devices. Mm -hmm. Evolution makes devices that exploit physics. Once you exploit physics, you have laws of computation, you have laws of mathematics that help you do these kinds of things. Like in a very, you know, it's kind of a stupidly simple um, example with this triangle, but, but that's the idea. You don't need to evolve that third angle. It's there for you for free. So that's, you know, so it's tricky to, to say whether they have that information or they don't have it. You don't need to have it in the genome in order to, you know, the genome is the, it's the contingent kind of, those are the contingent details, but, but everything else you can actually find, you know? I see. Interesting. Okay. Okay. It it actually reminds me, um, I was reading David Deutsch's book last year mm. and he talks about, you know, how animals are actually restricted um by the knowledge that's contained in the genome. But I mean, mm. you know, it's it, a lot of your work might show otherwise mm. now once we once we go along. Yeah. I mean I mean look, uh there are restrictions. If you have a genome that does not let you make voltage sensitive ion channels. Mm -hmm. You are missing a very powerful uh, way to interface with feedback loops, with logic, uh, you know, um, uh, logic uh, gates, uh, things that transistors are good for, right? So, so our voltage-gated ion channels are basically transistors. If you don't have that in your genome, there mm -hmm. are things that are very hard or maybe impossible for you to do. So from that perspective, sure, the genome constrains what you can do. And the genome enables other things you can do. You know, once you have adhesion proteins, you can take advantage of all kinds of cool physics of adhesive, you know, adhesion and, and sorting and all of that. Um, so, so yes, it's true that it that it constrains, but it does not determine the all, all of the you know all, all of the possibilities. It's it's a, it's not a controversial claim. It's like hardware and software, yeah. right? You know, when you buy a, when you buy a PC. Does it determine what you can do with it? Yes and no, right? Mm -hmm. Some things you're not going to be able to do with it based on the hardware, but there are so many things that you could do with it that are not directly described by that hardware. And now we're just expanding the possibilities of the software, learning more about it. Yeah, that's 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 right. Because yeah. because yeah. if you don't know your if you don't know uh, what subroutines are available to you, you have mm -hmm. very limited capacities. And this is why yeah. when I give a t when I give a talk, one of my first slides is what programming looked like in the 40s and 50s, right? It's this great, it's this big giant thing. And this woman's sitting there and she's she's literally plugging wires in and out hmm. because in those uh -huh. days, programming had to be at the hardware level. And everybody uh -huh. laughs. And I, and I say I say to people, um, 
Wouldn't it be, uh, how, how terrible would it be if on your laptop, you know, if you wanted to switch from uh, Microsoft Excel to PowerPoint, you would have to get out your soldering iron and start rewiring. It would be, ah, ha, that would be terrible. So how come you don't have to do that? Isn't that amazing? And why don't, why aren't we just as outraged when you do that in, in molecular medicine? That's all you have in molecular medicine is, 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 is direct uh, control, you know, direct attempts to control the, the hardware, right? How come, how, come, yeah. how come we're not, you know, that, I, I, I truly think that some number of years from now, we're going to look back and that picture is, you know, we're going to have the same picture of, of, of somebody doing CRISPR on, um, you know, on a, on a genetic circuit. And we're going to say, ha, 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 look at that. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, they're having to program at the level of hardware. It's going to be the same, uh, you know, the same level of, of amusement. That's a great analogy. Um, so another application you mentioned was cancer. Cancer mm -hmm. is, say, just disorganization at the morphogenetic code level. Um, I have two questions that, one, can you explain this? And then, two, do we have any sense of why this disorganization at the information processing or morphogenetic level starts to occur? Yeah, so let's, let's go back um, and ask ourselves... Um, the, let's, let's just think about what cancer is, and and and, and I want to be clear by saying that uh, you know cancer is a very complex set of diseases. There's all kinds of clinical manifestations. So I'm I'm once again not claiming that I have the answer to all of this. I'm providing a, what I think is a useful way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Asking the question why do we have cancer is the wrong question. The re the real question is why is there ever anything but cancer? Why are individual cells able to work together to build complex organs? Why do they not all act like amoebas, which is basically metastasis? Uh, we used to be amoebas, uh, all of us. Uh, how come, uh, and bacteria, how come, the, how come there's anything else? And so whatever mechanism, what, once you've realized that, yeah, our native state was single cell, eventually we got together and started working on cooperative projects, like, hey, build a kidney or build a, you know, build an arm. Whatever mechanisms we have for coordinating that, inevitably at some point they're gonna there's gonna be breakdowns of that mechanism. Now, mm -hmm. so so that so that tells you that just you know cancer is the occasional price we pay for being multicellular organisms. We're being made of parts. Then, well, when you say inevitably there'll be any breakdowns, I guess why do you think that's inevitable? Well, anytime anytime you have a mechanism that does anything, there's a chance of it breaking down. Right. Okay. Anything that requires, you know, is, is there going to be a breakdown of gravity? No, because gravity doesn't require a machine to keep it going. Is there, right. you know, would there be a breakdown of a bicycle? There's a good chance because right. there are three particular things that have to happen for this to be a workable bicycle. And at some mm -hmm. point, there's a chance that it can go wrong. I'm not saying, okay. I'm, not, I'm not putting any statistics on it. I'm not saying that, every, I'm not saying every human at some point has to get cancer. I'm saying that anytime yeah. you have an active mechanism required, there's some chance that it's going to break down. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's think about, um, Let's think about what actually happens uh, in, 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 during, that, during that breakdown. When you have cells, collected, um, cells uh, connected to each other, specifically in electrical networks, and I don't mm -hmm. have time to go into all the details, but, but, but there are, you know, we've described this in papers. Um, what's important about that is there's, import there's an important sense of individual, uh, there's a loss of individual identity in the cells. Because when two cells are connected to each other very tightly, then all the memories are shared, all the measurements that they take are shared. So, so it's like a breakdown of individual identity. Instead of a bunch of little cells, you have a collective that has this emergent goal. In that case, it might be building some sort of organ. But, but the point is that it has, uh, it's, very, it's impossible for the cells to defect or they, in the language of game theory, not cooperate with each other because they are not unique individuals at that point. They are so tightly coupled that the network is able to store goals that individual cells don't have. And we know how this works in artificial neural networks uh, to some extent anyway. Um, and, uh, and that's what happens. Now, now think of what happens during the breakdown. So one way things break down is there are specific kinds of oncogenes like KRAS mm -hmm. mutations, where one of the first thing that happens during that, after that mutation is that cells become electrically disconnected from their neighbors. As soon as the cell becomes disconnected from its neighbor, the boundary, uh, between it, itself and the world starts to shrink. For, for a collection of cells, the boundary is quite large. It might be a whole finger or a whole arm or the whole body, you know, it's quite large. For, once a cell becomes disconnected, that boundary between self and world shrinks. As far as that cell is concerned, the rest of the body is just external environment. 
right? It, it's it's no longer plugged into the goals of that network. It's now, right. well, I'm now an amoeba like I used to be, you know, a billion years ago. What are my goals? Well, my goals are to become two amoebas and to go wherever life is good. That's my, those mm. are my goals, and that's metastasis. So what you have, and, and and so what you have is is once you disconnect from the network, the, the purpose of the network is to raise the IQ of the collective so that it can work towards goals that are bigger than single cell level goals. Single cells can have metabolic goals, they can have some some local shape goals and things like that, but they can't have, they can't contemplate the goal of making a finger or an arm or something like that. Only the collective can, can do that. So, so when they disconnect, they don't become more selfish than normal cells. A lot of times people talk about cancer cells being more selfish. They're not more selfish, they just have smaller cells. Everybody's all, all the cells are equally selfish. It's just that when they're merged, it's like a it's like a it's like a mind meld. When they're merged into one group, that selfishness goes towards, you know, I'm making a, this organ in the body. And by the way, that's a very selfish process because organs compete for energy and information with each other inside the same body, organs compete. Um, mm. and uh and and so that self is kind of large, but now when the self shrinks, well now it's a single cell. The single cell doesn't care what happens to the environment. Um and so and so so that's cancer so so what we've been able to do basically we've been able to do three things and most of our work has been in uh in in frog models now as in fact just this morning we published a paper on this in human glioblastoma so so we're slowly mm -hmm. moving to um to to to, to mammals and, and, and medicine um we've shown three things number one that we can use voltage sensitive dye technology to image and detect when uh, when cells are about to uh, to defect from the electrical network. So they acquire, we inject, basically we inject oncogenes into a tadpole and when the cells get to, um, uh, you know, when, 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 when they become uh, uh, isolated, uh, they, it's, it's, uh, we can, that, that voltage, that aberrant voltage potential, we can image it. So you can see where the tumor is going to form. And so that's a, the, it's a basis of very obvious diagnostic, you know, kinds of applications. So that's mm -hmm. the first thing. The second thing we found is that there's this, uh, there's this standard, you know, the standard story of cancer is that it starts with mutations and that there's a set right. of mutations that, okay. So, so what we were able to show is that you don't need any of that. What you can mm -hmm. do is you can disrupt the electrical communication between cells and you can trigger, so we've shown that you can trigger metastatic melanoma in a frog model with no mutations whatsoever, no mutations, no oncogenes, no carcinogens, no disruption of the genetics at all. The hardware is perfectly fine. And it's like, again, it's new now. In fact, it was so many people said it was out, out, outrageous when we first, uh, you know, our first PNAS paper, the reviewers were like, where's the, what's the genetic mutation here? Where's your founder cell? We said, that's exactly the point. There is no founder cell. There is no genetic mutation. I said, well, then it's not a cancer. Huh. Well, that's a very funny, you know, way to to do this. You're defining it the way you'd like to define it, but look at the phenotype. You know, the animal is 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 packed with these with these you know metastatic uh, uh, transformed melanocytes. And so, uh, you, you know, you and 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 in the early stages, there's nothing wrong with them. You couldn't tell that genetically. You would never find anything wrong with them. You know, later on, of course, they turned on all the response genes. You know, slug and snail and all that stuff. But um, yeah, so so we show that just by disruption of electrical uh, signaling, you can induce you can induce cancer, and so so it doesn't have to it doesn't have to start. It's like it, in, in fact, again, it's it's one of these things. It was it was considered new and and, and strange and whatever. But in the '60s, um, this guy whose name I'm blanking on at the moment had this quote that said that you you will never find the cause of a traffic jam by looking at the internal combustion engine of the car. Right? That's not <laughs> where the problem is. There's nothing wrong with these cars. And that's exactly <laughs> the thing here. You can sequence these cells till you go blue. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with them. There's no, there's, it's not a problem with the, with the hardware. Huh. Nothing wrong with the right. chip. Nothing wrong with the hardware. Okay. The third thing we did, which, which is okay, you know, kind of the most exciting, is we could go in the opposite direction. So we could take, mm, we could take embryos that were injected with uh, oncogen oncogenes, like nasty KRAS mutations and things like that. And, uh, and we could artificially force their voltage to stay normal so that they stay in electrical connection with their neighbors. And if you do that, you can suppress the tumors. So you can suppress or even, even normalize tumors that already exist. So, so we were, and you can do that with drugs. You can do that with optogenetics. You can do that with, um, with injected, you know, channel RNA. Um, and we were able to show that. And so, wow. so those are the stories on, in, in, in cancer. You can, you can detect it, you can induce it, and you can normalize it. You don't kill the cells. The cells don't die. So there's no, so, so it's a different, um, 
approach going forward. It's not some sort of chemotherapy, right, where you're trying to poison one set of cells. It's, it's not that. You're trying to reinflate the size of the self again so that these cells just get harnessed back to the histo histogenesis programs, not, uh, not, not cancer. Yeah, that's very different. So it's like you're giving signals to these cells to mm -hmm. once again become part of the collective machinery mm -hmm. and the collective goal instead of um, whatever caused the disorganization to occur and for them to go off on their own path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. amazing. So um, I'm curious, like, what did you show in, 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 in humans? You said he said published something. Oh, this is, yeah, it just came out this morning. Um, mm -hmm. This is, uh, this is uh, the, the work of... Uh, a staff scientist in my group uh, called uh, Juanita Matthews, and uh, she showed that uh, human glioblastoma cell lines in this is this is in culture. The next, of course, we have to go in vivo. Um, mm -hmm. In culture, we can uh, using uh, already human-approved ion-channel drugs. So things uh, these are things people already take for other reasons. Can uh, can prevent those cells. They can stop them from proliferating and uh, induce a level of uh, uh, normalization. So basically a, a degree of differentiation into like normal normal neurons, um, things like that. I mean, it's a, it's a very long paper, but that's, that's the idea, it, it, normalization of these cells in, in culture. Okay, amazing. Um, a few last questions, I know you have to go uh, okay. at 12. Um, on the topic of cancer, I guess aging is something that comes up as well. And I know David Sinclair recently posted that your team and his team sat together and brainstormed yeah. how maybe some of your research can have potential applications for aging. So I, I don't know if you can like, if it, if it's not, if you can try it publicly, talk about how you're even thinking about some of these applications applying to aging. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are clearly connected problems, you know, planaria that are so highly regenerative do not age. So there's no such thing as an old planaria and they're immortal. Uh, that's, no, that's not an accident. Uh, so the question is, what's going on? How are they able to continuously regenerate their, their any, any senescent tissues? Um, and by the way, going back to your original question about the DNA, you know, because, mm -hmm. because some species of planaria, because they don't uh, they, because the way they divide, they just tear themselves in half and regenerate, so they don't necessarily go through sperm and egg. It means that any cell that gets a mutation and doesn't die repopulates the new worm, that's, you know, the second half of the worm, then after they split, will come from these cells. So they're continuously accumulating somatic mutations. That doesn't happen for other creatures, right? Because the somatic mutations we get in our body don't get passed on to our offspring. In planaria, they do. So planaria have an incredibly messy genome. In fact, a single worm, all the cells are mixoploid, meaning they're all, they're all mm -hmm. a different number of chromosomes, like a tumor. If you were to sequence that, you see, oh, this is a mess. This should, this should definitely be a tumor. And they are 100% the best regenerators around. They're, they're rock-solid anatomical control. The genome is all over the place. It's a total mess. So that, that already tells you how little we understand about what the gene, what genomes actually do and what's actually controlling things. It, it should be, it, it's not anything you see in any textbooks, but it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, it should be a scandal of, you know, why, why is the, well, why, why is the, why is, can this happen? Uh, so, so with David, so, so we, we don't know exactly what model system we're going to look at, but, but the bottom line is they have, they have some really amazing examples of uh, the control of aging in their various um, mammalian systems and mice and human cells and so on. Uh, we are going to uh, look to see what the bioelectric component of that is. How much mm -hmm. of how much of that control? How what happens to the bioelectrics during aging? Can you use the bioelectrics to try to reverse aging? Uh, you know those kinds of things. We'll see. It's very early. We're just starting. It's very early days. Yeah. No. Very exciting. Curious to see what happens. Um, last question on. I guess this has application synthetic biology as well. Yeah. You know, um, more recently, I think Elon Musk tweeted about something, and then synthetic wombs became. Um, a hot topic of debate. So I guess I, your research could also apply to creating synthetic wombs or just artificial life, right? Um, yeah, there's a lot there uh, to talk about. I mean, we don't really make artificial life per se. We make novel organisms because we start with existing cells in my group. We don't we don't address the origin of life issue really. We don't. I mean, there are other people who do a very nice job of making these minimal systems that are kind of like living cells, but not really. And we don't do that. We start with existing cells, and then we make novel organisms to test the ability of life to adapt to novel configurations and try to understand something about evolution by doing that. Uh, yeah, so that's, so, you know, so that's, I mean, wombs in the sense of, in the sense of humans, we don't have anything to do with that, you know, that, that issue, but, but, but really to, to understand the intelligence of cells and their ability to adjust to novel perturbations. 
Got it. Okay. Well, anything else, um, last points you want to talk about that I haven't asked you or just what you're excited about in the future? Yeah, no, I think, uh, thank you for the conversation. Uh, I think you asked uh, all the all the right questions. We're, we're incredibly excited because the, it's, it's not often that uh, you can make progress, I think, on problems ranging from like fundamental issues of, of philosophy of mind and personal identity right. and, and uh, in a way that makes uh, an impact on medicine. So they're not just thinking, you know, in the vacuum. It actually has practical applications. So, so I'm, very, you know, I'm, I'm just super excited about this this field. I'm super excited to be working with all the people in my group, everybody else in the community. Um, it's just a very exciting time to be doing this. Couldn't agree more with you. It's typically discussed in silos where philosophers talk about, talking about the meaning of life or cognitive yeah. science, and you're combining all of this into something a lot more practical. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to Thank you so you. much. Yeah, real pleasure. Thank you. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm blown away by the pace of longevity research and I want to keep bringing you great conversations with longevity scientists themselves. If you want to support the creation of the podcast, consider sharing it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or signing up to be a premium member for show notes. All resources can be found at livelongerworld.com As you all know, Aging is universal. We can unite in this fight and be healthy forever. I can't wait and see you next time.